Julia Pistel, CD Improv, Julia, Julia, Julia right. Pistel, spelled S-E-A-T-E-A. S-E-A-T-E-A Improv, look them up on Facebook and elsewhere. C-T Improv! Dot com! Harper, Connecticut! This is Julia Pastel of CT Improv, and I am here with the super awesome Brenna Harvey, and we are drinking a homebrew that somebody gave me. So it's probably pretty strong. <laughs> yep. Uh, last time, you don't know this, but last time I was drinking during one of these was with Laura's, and I forgot to record it. So uh, <laughs> that was long ago, and I've learned from my mistakes. But we are. Interviewing Grenna for our CT Improv podcast, which we have not put out an episode of in quite some time. Maybe a year. But now we're back with me. Just we're like, back. We're back with the best. It's like we're, part two of a cliffhanger. <laughs> <laughs> some sort of season break or something. People, yeah, yeah. Like when they started splitting, you know, season finales in two. Yeah. Oh, so annoying. Um, That's so- me. That really annoys <laughs> <laughs> Media convention. <laughs> Uh, all right, so Brenna, um, for listeners of the podcast, will you just um, introduce yourself, maybe say your name, and I'm, t- I'm totally coming off at teaching a workshop, sorry. Say your name and why you're here for this class. No, um, say your name and where you're from, and yeah, where did you grow up? So my name's Brenna. Uh, I've been doing improv for probably about almost 10 years now. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm from Orange, Connecticut. I lived in Connecticut my entire life. So it's Southern Connecticut. I always say I'm from New Haven because nobody knows wow. where Orange is. A liar. <laughs> so dirty. I was honest here, though. I started yeah, I know. my real hometown. Uh, I went to college at UConn uh, for English and Sociology, and now I'm a sociology doctoral candidate uh, still at UConn. Yes. I can't wait to talk about that more a little bit. But we're mostly going to talk about comedy. Good. Um, so when you were a kid growing up outside of New Haven... That's how you should say it, by the way. Yeah. As someone who grew up outside of New York, a.k.a. in New Jersey. Uh, <laughs> what um, What were you like? I'm always curious about this. How would you describe yourself as a little kid? As a little kid? Um, you know, like, creepy English children in horror movies. <laughs> uh-huh. but, but without an English accent. Just, like, really eerily big-eyed and polite. Um. Like I'm my, imagining formal dresses. Not oh, I hated dresses. Okay, so All right. I was so in like, like, like high waisted jeans and like stripy t-shirts or like knee length denim shorts. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, I remember being really, really terrified of talking to like adults who I didn't know really well. So I would like wander through. I have seven memories of like wandering through parties, like looking for my mother, like staring at adults, <laughs> and they'd be like, "Oh, hello there, little girl," and I just, <laughs> just. Did you ever do that horrible thing where you thought someone was your mom and you, like, touched them? Do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah. I remember once I thought someone was my mom. uh, I was, I think my mom was pumping gas. And, like, I turned around and someone who looked like my mom was across the street. And I didn't, I don't know how I didn't register that my mom wouldn't have teleported. But I started screaming and running across the street after this strange woman. Because I thought my mom had, like, tried to escape me. God, that's horrible. I've had it happen to me the other way around a lot of times where a kid will like touch my leg or something and then look at me with this face of absolute <laughs> abject horror. It's really funny. Um, 
Okay, so were, would you say you were like a funny little kid? Did you like comedic stuff? Yeah, well, I think I had the intense desire to be funny. And I thought that I could master it, like a, any sort of skill. Uh-huh. Uh, so I think that resulted in me being very stilted and awkward, <laughs> <laughs> trying to be funny, but having no, like, natural talent for it. Amazing. So, um... When did you get, like, really into comedy? I mean, I think for a lot of people, it was when they were teenagers or around that age. Is that true of you? I wouldn't say... I really liked certain, uh, like, humorous authors. Mm -hmm. So I really liked, um, like, comedic sci-fi and fantasy, like Douglas Adams and Terry Pratchett and stuff like that when I was a teenager. I don't think I got really into performance or doing comedy probably until college when Mm -hmm. I joined an improv group. Yeah. Did you do theater at all? I did, yeah. Um, I went to an arts high school, actually, but I was in the visual arts department. Oh. Uh, and I was always jealous of the theater kids because they talked to each other and were friends, and the visual artists were not. Um, but senior year, I was in drama club. Uh, my big role was I played King Claudius in a high school production of Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are Dead. Uh, oh. It was very, very strange and very poorly done. <laughs> I thought you were going to say in Hamlet, and I was going to be super impressed. No, nothing, no. I think I had, like, two speeches <laughs> in this for, like, when Claudius, like, appears, and then... Yeah. Because they're... But behind. you were a ghost at that point, probably, right? Or no? Are you alive? I was still alive. I was alive. I have some speech with the Queen, and then I come back and order Rosencrantz and Guildenstern around. Oh, perfect. Yeah. Sounds like you. All right, so then you went to UConn, which is going to be a critical, you know, it's like you're marching on the path to CT, basically, at that point. Um, Or we were marching towards you, because I think you actually started doing improv before we started doing improv. Oh, yeah, actually. I remember my director, Dan, he, didn't he run some long-form workshops for you guys? Dan Evans, yeah. Yeah. So tell us about um, how you got involved in UConn's improv scene. Um, so I really wanted friends when I got to college, mm-hmm. like anyone, um, <laughs> desperate for friends and making a new start, uh, on my whole identity. Um, and I went to the involvement fair and saw that there was an improv troupe, so I just signed up for it. I went to a couple of their shows, creeped on them, basically. Can we just pause for a second? UConn calls it an involvement fair? Yeah. That's, wow, that's like... <laughs> So straight up, not like activities or anything like that. Involvement. Yeah. It's, I mean, the involvement fair, I think, is pretty important um, mm-hmm. just for making sure everybody knows, like, here are all the things you can do. So you stalked Horse Lincoln. Well, no, this was before Horse Lincoln existed. Oh, shit. I, yeah, no, I founded Horse Lincoln with Dan. Oh, shit. Yeah. All right. Back up. Okay. So you went to the involvement fair. Yes. And? There was a short-form troupe that had been just been founded the year before, um, called Agents of Improv, which is still at UConn. It's a great, it's a great troupe. And the great thing about Agents was that it was, um, totally open. So anyone could come to any of the meetings and they would randomly assign people to play any and all short form games. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was like a really nice and inclusive welcoming space. Um, so that's where I started off. Awesome. So wait, Agents is what Steve was in, right? Yes. Awesome. And Ashley Hamill, mm-hmm. who we know from Great Maple Leaf Society. Just for all you guys out there, uh, agents of improv. Um, okay, so then what happened? How did you? So were you in agents, or you would go sometimes, or? Yeah, I was in agents. I was pretty heavily involved. Um, I think for my freshman and sophomore year, 
And while I was starting, a couple of the folks um, who were in the group were really interested in long form. Like, a few of them were very interested uh, in comedy. Generally, like, read a bunch of, like, UCB books and stuff like that. Um, two of them, actually, Steve Winchell and Sean Rose, uh, live in Chicago now and are trying to, like, make it in comedy. Uh, so we started practicing with long form, um, but we were terrible at <laughs> We were, like, really... Very familiar to me. (laughs) (laughs) Like, it was so intriguing and seemed so cool, but we couldn't... We were really, really quite bad. Did you see it anywhere? Yeah, we did actually take a couple of trips to New York City. Um, We actually had dinner with uh, Charlie Todd once. (laughs) That's so weird. It was super (laughs) random. We had a really, really outgoing... social chair, Nick, who just, like, emailed him. was like, we're huge fans of UCB long-form improv. We're for a college team. Uh, and so he, like, had dinner with us. But it was a really, really long table. So I was uh, at the opposite end from Charlie Todd and didn't get to talk to him at all. That's awful. <laughs> that's, like, I, the older I get, and this is so Cheryl Sandberg, but, you know, like, you gotta just make a fucking beeline and sit near your heroes if you want to. (laughs) Or at least set up a table situation where there's mingling and rotating happening. Um, Cool. All right. So what do you remember your first improv show, maybe with agents or something like that? My first improv show, yes, because uh, an old friend of mine just Facebook messaged me about it. Uh, so we used to do something sort of like comedy sports, I guess, because we would have two teams, um, and different colored t-shirts and the audience would like, we would play the same game, I think one at Mm -hmm. a time. Uh, and the audience would vote on which team had done better and they'd like get a point or something like that. It's totally boring detail. Um, I think my first show, I played some character named like Hobo Jim like really like wow. gross <laughs> like um like hobo jim was like a substitute teacher in an elementary school or something like that well at least like, he had a job yeah wasn't he automatically not a hobo at that point i have a lot of questions well i think if he was itinerant still like he could still be a hobo <laughs> like a trap a substitute teacher who rides the rails i think is still wow a hobo this is a lot to talk about <laughs> Because if you were a hobo who had a full-time teaching position, no. But you're just jumping in. Okay. Wasn't it, isn't right. it about the whether you live and stay somewhere, not about whether you make money? I don't know. I don't know, because I don't say hobo. That's not a I thing. I don't think anyone says hobo <laughs> anymore. Uh, yeah, I think he, in my mind, hobos are basically just homeless people. But I guess maybe you're right. I'm picturing a little bindle and like jumping on the train. Yeah, I thought it, I thought it was a term of another age, sort of like a 30s depression era kind of. Must be a specific All right. era of poverty and suffering. <laughs> and that's how you made your way into comedy. Yeah. Um, okay, so you guys, you know, you started doing long form. It was horrible. You met Charlie Todd, and then and then what happened? Then so my friend. Dan, who I still, I love him very much, but he uh, got very frustrated with the terrible improv that we were doing um, and wanted to have a long-form only troupe um, Mm -hmm. and to make it audition-based and to make sure that we were um, actually, like, learning UCB-style improv, not that we were sort of, like, reading books about what heralds were and what game was and sort of taking our best guess at whether or not we were doing it right. 
Um, Because I just have to say, for the record, all books about improv are horrible. Yes. Well, the new UCB manual is pretty good. That one's pretty good, but I'm not sure how good it is since I already know most of what they're talking about. So if you're going to a cold, you don't know if it would actually be able to teach you anything. Yeah. But yes, go on. I just had to interject my opinion. So... Uh, I can't remember. I think we just had, Dan and I had a couple conversations about it because it was basically like Dan was the visionary who had the wherewithal to actually found a troop. And I was the friendly, nice, chill person who would make sure that we actually got members who became friends (laughs) and would enjoy spending their time together. Uh, So he was like the director and I was the like kind of mama bear of the situation. You need both. Yeah. So... So was Eliza in that original group? I don't think she was in it. So she uh, wasn't at UConn the first two years. She transferred, I think, our mm. sophomore, junior year. Um, and she was in Agents the next year. And then she auditioned for Horse Lincoln the following year. So so what year was this? When did this happen? I need to find out if which one of us started doing improv first. When did we found Horse Lincoln? I believe we decided at the, we it started the beginning of my junior year. So that would have been... 2008. Mm-hmm. Same exact time. <laughs> <laughs> That's the exact, exact same time that CT started taking classes in, uh, at Harvard Stage. That's hilarious. Um, but we were just starting short form at the time, so you beat us. Um, okay, wow, that's amazing. So by the time we saw you at Cage Match with Horace Lincoln, and you had short hair. Yeah, I had a, so, I had a shaved head. Yeah. You didn't have a shaved head when we saw you. It was grown back, I guess. But um, I think it was a shaved head I hadn't attended to. <laughs> it was a poorly kept shaved head. I was just like, wow, she's got short hair. Um, so how did you guys get from, you know, that terrible, terrible, traumatic <laughs> first long-form attempts to the really solid game-style improv that we saw only a couple years later? Well, Dan took UCB classes like a maniac. Aha. Uh-huh. Um, and then we also got really good at navigating the UConn funding system so that we could get UCB coaches. Mm-hmm. Um, so we had a ton of UCB coaches. Uh, John Frashanti, Ben Ramika, um, a couple others. Uh, Karen, I uh, can't remember her last name. but so Matt, I don't want to say, but I know who she was in. This, again, putting you on this like weird Mad Men timeline thing. <laughs> Um, Karen was in, like, 301 or something with Greg, Dan, and Joe. Yeah, yeah, that Karen. So she got accepted, and, oh, yeah, I know it's that Karen, because she immediately got onto a Herald team or something and then started coaching you guys, and, like, they were, like, hella jealous. They were like, oh, my God, Karen's <laughs> doing it. Um, so, yeah, that wasn't that, that wasn't too long ago, but, yeah, she was awesome. So then you guys, did you primarily do Heralds, or did you do other forms, too? We did mostly Montage and Herald for a really long time. Yeah. Because truly, when we saw you, this is just compliment time. <laughs> Not just you, but all of Horse Lincoln, you know, like, Horse Lincoln doing good Heralds. Horse Lincoln and Purple Crown um, was a huge part of the reason that CT started to do long form. Oh, wow. Because we were like, what is <laughs> Uh, I mean, I think a couple of people had gone to UCB, but, you know, just seeing these, like, happy college teams just, like, go out there and be, like, so smart and wipe the floor with this intelligent, like, callbacks. I mean, I I remember certain callbacks and tie-ins to this day because it was like, oh, my God, 
the, that whole aspect was very mind blowing to us at the time. So you guys were awesome. So then you started, you were doing Harold and then did you enter cage match pretty quickly? I think so. Yeah. Yeah. Cause I feel like our first cage match, I'm trying to, I'm trying to remember the original horse leaking lineup. Uh, how do you not know in your bones? Well, cause I was in it for so long because I was in it and then graduated. And then when I was in my master's program, I went back cause all my friends were seniors. So I was like, I'm still in college. Which is so cheating. I know, it's completely <laughs> nonsense. Um, but so remembering like who was in the group from your year is yeah. tricky. Uh, but yeah, I think that was our very first year. Cause I think that was like, yeah, me, Dan, Drew, Eliza, Matt, I don't know if anyone knows these people. And Drew, Drew was like, yes, that's that's the lineup that we saw for yeah. sure. Yeah. Because Drew was like a tiny baby. Yes. He was like Looking 11 years old. Like, <laughs> <It's so laughs> um, and Drew, for the podcast record, is your boyfriend. Yes. Um, and also an amazing improviser now, mostly at Improv Boston. But he yeah. was really young. I think yeah. we, we didn't, saw we didn't start dating until I went to graduate school and he was the senior. And I'm also exaggerating. He was. 18 or 19, but he looked really young. Yeah. Like, I remember when we saw him, like, you and Dan were, like, older and more, like, self-assured, and he was like, oh, my God, I'm doing it <laughs> Like, here's an idea. Is it good? And then everybody would be like, yeah, it's good. Um, so, yeah, I very distinctly remember all those people. So that must have been the group that we saw. Yeah. Oh, my God. Drew's first initiation when he auditioned for the group he started to see, he just walked out and cracked his neck in the <gasps> most disgusting, loud neck crack ever. Um, that's just what I, what I most, that was like the moment I think when I met him and I was like, who is this kid? Wait, was that a positive or negative? I don't even know how I would react. I think, um, cause then he rolled with it. I forget who, I don't think his scene partner got into the group, but they were like, what's wrong with you? And he had some really great explanation. Yeah. <laughs> so super smart. Good instincts. Now you guys to me have always, you guys being horse Lincoln, um, in my heart, you'll always be like horse Lincoln first because <laughs> we were just so into you. And, and Dan, I've told you this, but Dan Russell was into you as a person. He was like, whoever that is. And then he like <laughs> learned all your names. Like he was collecting baseball cards or something. And so like, we all knew who you were. Um, so, so funny to me. Uh, Dan got really intense about it. Anyway, um, you guys always seem really top of intelligence, and that was one of the best things about the group. What, did, is that something you particularly focus on, or do you think it naturally just came out of who was in the, on the team? It was definitely something that we worked really hard at. I think especially when you're in a college improv troupe, a lot of the um, humor that we saw in various comedy groups and stuff like that was really reliant on, like, cheap easy humor. Um, and it's something that I think, especially when you're first starting out and you're nervous and you're doing like a short form game. So you only have so much time. It's like really easy to go to the, like, I'm really high or I'm really drunk or like you're a prostitute or something like that. Um, and that was something that we very sort of consciously rejected and mm -hmm. wanted to sort of, uh, not do <laughs> or participate in. Yeah. And I feel like one of the huge drawbacks to being on a college team is the constant rotation of people. But it's mm -hmm. also a huge asset in that you know you're having auditions, and then if someone does become reliant on bad habits, they're rotating out pretty quickly, and you can self-select for the kind of kids you want to work with. Yeah, it was it was really interesting because um, I think it was very helpful that when we auditioned, we also very conscientiously didn't look for funny people. Mm -hmm. Like, we looked for people who seemed... Um, kind and friendly and receptive and not like spotlight hogs. 
Mm-hmm. Um, because I think if you take the people who are like, will do anything to get a laugh, inevitably you're going to have a team of a bunch of really obnoxious drop queens. Yeah, it's hard. We had somebody, I don't know who it was, give that advice. Like, don't be afraid to lose your divas, even if they're your funniest people because, or not take divas and funniest people because they're more toxic than they are. It's just never worth it. Yeah. Well, especially for an improv troupe, which is so much more than individual talent. It's so much about people, how people click together and how they work together and support each other. So if you have everybody who's in it for themselves, you're never going to gel. Like no one's ever going to listen. It's going to be terrible. So yeah, totally. All right. So you graduate, you do a lot of good horsing Lincoln improv. You guys won the cage match at some point. You were in it a million times. You guys were so good. Um, now, let's take a detour to your degree because I want to hear about it. So, <laughs> listeners, Brennan's giving me a look like, no. <laughs> Please, no. But, so explain to us the degree that you are currently working on. Oh, my current degree. Okay. Um, well, it doesn't it co- is an extension of your master's? Yes. Well, I'm okay. in a combined program. It's just funny because I, I was an art student for a while in college, so it's not a oh, I didn't that, like, know that was a sort of long-term trajectory All right. of any kind. No, I mean, uh, so, like, in my mind, we're going along, like, you're in horse linking, you graduate, yay, and then you ended up staying at UConn, well, you're still at UConn, mm-hmm. for several more years. So uh, um, tell us how you selected your advanced degree and, and what you're working on. Well, so I went to college hoping in some way to be occupied and employed in some sort of activity that benefits the world in some way. I think like many, many great young people. (laughs) Good for you. Um, and like I said, I was, uh, so I wanted to be, um, an artist for a really long time. Specifically, I wanted to be a graphic novelist. I wanted to (gasps) tell, I want you to be a graphic novelist. Oh no, though that time is long. Um, so I, I got really, I mean, um, visual arts programs are always really, really demanding because they have to train people basically to be able to be art teachers. Mm -hmm. So you have to have sort of passing expertise and a whole variety of stuff that's totally unrelated to what you yourself want to do. So you have to take sculpture and photography and illustration regardless of what you want to do. So I burnt out really quickly. Um, and I was like, how do I help the world? What can I do to change society and make it better? I don't know. Uh, and then I was like, oh, sociology, (laughs) um, study of societies. Yeah. And sociology, I mean, most, I think academic disciplines are pretty, pretty lefty and socially conscious and stuff like that. But sociology in particular just struck me as it's cause it's really, it's the study of social inequality. It's very, it's not, doesn't make a pretense of being value neutral, which I feel like some older social sciences do in a lot of ways. Um, so it's very sort of expressly and explicitly political, which I really liked. So I finished up, uh, a sociology degree as an undergraduate and was pretty into it. I think as far as any undergraduate can be. And so took a year off after college just to work and live in my parents' house. Took a year off to live with my parents. Yes. Uh, you know, <laughs> saw the world from my little attic <laughs> room um, and applied to uh, a bunch of PhD programs and didn't get into that many. And of the ones that I did get into, UConn gave me the best financial package with teaching and funding. So, so you're so like, back I'm I back. Came. Yeah. <laughs> so how, how much longer do you have to go? I have two more years. All right, that's not long. Yeah, I you're know. You're great. <laughs> um, you're getting out there. Yeah. Um, so what is your thesis going to look like? 
So my main project right now, my dissertation project, uh, I do qualitative research. So the project is in-depth life history interviews with heterosexual college-educated men about their experiences of sexual socialization. So my area of specialty, broadly speaking, is gender and sexuality, but I'm particularly interested in masculinities because I'm really interested in... Um, one, the ways that patriarchy and gender inequality sort of limits and harms men, and then the ways that patriarchy and gender inequality, the way it limits and harms men, then makes inequality that women experience and makes sexism in a lot of ways unintelligible to them, because mm-hmm. it's like, well, I suffer, like I've experienced all these really intense gender pressures, um, I feel inadequate, I feel sad, like I can't express my emotions, however masculinity like hurts men, which the ways are infinite. Uh, then rather than that, then making them receptive to sort of gender egalitarianism or feminism makes them be like, but no, (laughs) the world, what feminism is just going to take away what little power I have. And women have so much sexual and social power over me and, (laughs) and can then have the actual effect of turning them into like, you know, misogynistic jerks. Um, so I'm really interested in sort of the ways that men get taught masculinity through the ways they get taught about sex. Um, and what are sort of the moments that can either compound socialization into sexism, misogyny, and anger in a lot of ways, and what are the moments that can actually make men sort of more open and receptive, both to the reality of inequality that women in particular and and everyone faces, um, and what can get them sort of politically invested in interrupting um, the reproduction of masculine privilege and patriarchy. Well, this is a really exciting time for you. Yeah. Honestly, socially, like, <laughs> so many of these issues are at the forefront of, oh, my God, everything I feel like we're dealing with as a nation well, yeah, right even now. just right now, like, the MRA, the Men's Rights Activist Boycotts of yep. the Mad Max movie. <laughs> it's just like, <laughs> the feminists are ruining our Hollywood movies, which was the last thing that we had, bro. <laughs> but, yeah, I mean, there's just so many, I mean, I feel like, rape culture is finally a phrase that's out in the open and Mm -hmm. it's got all of these ugly discussions that will hopefully turn beautiful at some point. But like, I feel like things that, you know, when I was in school, we talked about weren't in the public discourse are finally kind of like the dirt's getting kicked up and it's really awful, but it is also so much material for sociologists like you and just anyone who wants to engage, you know, there's a lot of stuff out there for you. The rise of nerd culture, which, oh, yeah. as we've talked about, is a huge part of what you do. And it's just super related, I think, to the ways that uh, structures and inequalities like patriarchy and sexism become totally sort of obscured and uh, incomprehensible to so many men. I think to so many men, yeah, even relatively, like, structurally advantaged men, like middle-class white guys, you know, who go to college or whatever, can't may have suffered tremendously, mm-hmm. like, because of a nerd identity, may have been really, like, mercilessly tormented and bullied, may feel like they can't talk to women and, like, women are space aliens and stuff like that. And part of what I want to do with my work is acknowledge that, like, that pain is real. Like, mm-hmm. that pain is... Legitimate, like that, that suffering and the narratives that I encounter a lot in my work of depression and loneliness and isolation, I want to acknowledge that as legitimate, but then push people to contextualize their own experiences more broadly to say, it's not because of women that you feel so, so sort of masculinely inadequate or, or so sort of angry and isolated. It's not because of feminism. It's because of patriarchy. Like it's because of the standards of masculinity that are imposed on you. It's because of gender policing. It's because of how men are expected to behave. And it's because of all these other things. So 
that's what I would really want to sort of do with my work. That's my well, new change the world. It's super agenda. interesting. And to get back to improv, which we will right now with this beautiful transition, I mean, it must be fascinating to be around comedians all the time because, mm-hmm. I mean, well, we're not in stand-up, so I think it's a little different, but a lot of guys who go into comedy do feel that underdog sensibility and that's why they get into it. Mm -hmm. And I think you and Horace Lincoln and we in CT are really, really lucky in that we've got very gender balanced teams. Um, but that's not the norm. So I'm just curious how, how your sociology (laughs) PhD is interact, uh, is what what sort I'm looking for is overlapping with your, you know, your comedy playtime. Oh, in a lot of really fascinating ways. Um, so let me think about this. So on the one hand, um, I totally agree with you. I think that a lot of comedians get into comedy. I think a lot of artists and people who want to comment on the social world come to the art that they like and care about because they've suffered, because their suffering has given them some sort of insight and they want to talk about it. But I think... Um, a lot of ways that just manifests as rage, that manifests as, want to, as wanting to, like, strike back. Yeah. And then I think in a lot of environments, that can turn really toxic. And I think stand-up is one of the main ones. Yep, I agree. <laughs> yeah, where I think especially, and I know because um, Drew has done a lot of stand-up, particularly in the Boston scene and mm-hmm. stuff like that. And, yeah, so what you can sort of get is, like, an environment that's all angry men who have suffered. And then they create this culture of, like, hierarchy and hazing where then they make each other suffer more. <laughs> yeah. And then I think they're particularly sort of vicious with, like, heckling or what they think is funny or what they don't think is not funny or sort of how they criticize people. When it comes to, like, for instance, women or, like, folks of color or sort of other marginalized groups, I think that they tend to be more vicious because um, it's like you have to prove yourself, mm-hmm. you know? It's like we all had to prove ourselves, so we're going to sort of enact that even more viciously. <laughs> yeah, well, in Boston, this is based on absolutely fucking nothing except for personal experience. Boston, I think because it has so many colleges there Mm -hmm. and is, you know, like the heart of old America, you know, that's the most bro city I've ever been to, you know, (laughs) to put it in that context. So, you know, Drew's really walking into, he's, he's going against the grain. (laughs) Um, yes. And that is my completely based on nothing statement, but I, I feel it when I'm there. I'm like, who are these people? Like weirdo, there's less weirdos in Boston than there are, at least in New York. Um, cause those are the only two cities. They're the only ones that exist. <laughs> yeah. Um, all right. So Soon Hartford will start to exist. <laughs> so speaking of CT, let's talk about, so you're in Horse Lincoln as a grad student. Yes. Was that weird? It was not that weird because, well, okay. So for the first year it wasn't weird because, um, a bunch of my friends who had been in the group for all four years were, were seniors. Right. So, and I had gone back to grad school pretty early. So the age gap was not that big. Mm-hmm. Um, but we brought in all these really wonderful freshmen the first year I was there. Um, and then, of course, all my senior friends graduated. So then the second year, it was a little weird. <laughs> um, because it was, like, super, super mama bear situation of, like, I was, like, older and had all this life experience and, like, had done improv for so long. Um, so at the end of that year, I was like, I think my time in this college group is is over. And that's why I was so happy that CT was having auditions because it was like, I want to continue to do this. It's been so important to my... Uh, life and artistic and comedic development and survival. <laughs> and, you know, I had loved CT for years and years, so Aww. I came audition. Well, you've heard the story, but our listeners have not. I mean, when you... So, as I mentioned, we had loved you forever. And when you 
I opened this new beer for you. I was just finishing off the homebrew. It was good. It was, <laughs> it was great. Good. Yeah. Great job, Greg's coworker. <laughs> um, when you audition, or no, sorry, the way that it works is you have to email in like resume and a headshot and whatever. So we had loved you forever. And we got an email, I believe with no commentary whatsoever, just like an email that was like from Brenna Harvey, you know, and then it had just your resume attached. And I was like, I swear on my life, <laughs> I thought that Vlad made an email account as you. <laughs> just to mess with us. Just to mess with us. Because you were basically like our dream, you're like our number one draft pick forever. And I was sure that, that he did. So I told him, so I said this to a couple other people and they were like, yeah, maybe. And then we confronted him and of course he hadn't done it. It was really you. But he thought the idea was so good that he said, yeah, that was me. (laughs) (laughs) And we were like, oh, you got us. You got us, man. That was good. That was good. And then we, I looked at the resume and I was like, there's no way. (laughs) (laughs) It was like special projects for the Yukon Women's Center. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, But it was amazing because he, it was amazing on his part that he recognized so quickly that it was such a good joke that he took credit for it. And I believed it for days, like a couple of days. Um, but yeah, it was like a hot, it was like, is this flat or is this her? We don't know. We don't know. But, uh, it was, it was the best. It was the best <laughs> prank that didn't happen ever. Um, so you auditioned. Did you have fun at auditions? I did. I had a great time at auditions. I remember being so scared because, and I think I told you this shortly after I joined the group, but so, so Horse Lincoln had been long form only. So I hadn't done short form in years, probably like five years and had never been, never felt like I was super good at it. Um, and so I was so scared. <laughs> I was that like, they're going to make me do alphabet or something and I'm going to choke <laughs> and embarrass myself and launch myself out of the fifth story window of the ZT studio. <laughs> well, you know, the thing is like, I mean, we haven't had auditions for almost two years since you got in, but um, which is amazing. It's been that long. But the reason that we do short form is, well, it's easier to, you know, give people multiple chances, which a lot of people really need. Mm-hmm. Um, and certain short form games, it's not just like any random ass short form game. Like, I don't think we would do alphabet. That would be really weird. But, you know, certain short form games measure long form skills. And I think the people that don't, that see them as a complete dichotomy, which is really most improvisers, which I think is so crazy, mm-hmm. are missing the fact that if you are really good at rap battle, then that means that you have a high level of commitment mm-hmm. to something stupid, which a lot, a lot of long form requires. <laughs> it's like, I'm going to commit to this endowment or this character or whatever. It's not about the rhyme. It's about the commitment. I'm giving away a secret. Right. And then, like, line change is just heightening. It's yeah. like you just have to be able to heighten and commit to heightening. So. Yeah. And people are really good at line change. You're playing game with yourself. Yeah. You know, so... Line change is my favorite <laughs> Yeah. It's a lot of people's favorite. It's a lot of people's favorite. Which is funny because it's, you know, it's very simple. Yeah. And the audience is like, oh. I don't think the audience likes it as much as improvisers like it. Mm. Maybe because but, it's so intuitive to long form improvisers is why we like. Well, it. I think if you're good at it, it's less impressive. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I don't know. I haven't really decoded line change. <laughs> My favorite short form games are all the interview based games because I like and I like this in long form too. Pulling out premises, so we always do one of those too. But yeah, uh, 
So you you got in. It was awesome. It was we great. were excited. I was excited. <laughs> so how has it been? How have the last two years been? Any like particular standout highlights for you? Oh goodness. I mean in general it's been fantastic. It's like I love CT both because we do really good improv, I think. <laughs> um and because we're committed to being part of a community and to building an art and comedy scene in a specific community, which I think is like so endlessly admirable and important. Um, cause this is the thing I, it's like, you need stuff to do to stay alive. <laughs> like you need stuff that's fun and interesting and that engages your mind routinely, I think to make life rich and worth living. So I think that what we do is really great. Um, standout moments. I think I've learned a lot in CT. I think the all short form games have a secret unlocking <laughs> like mechanism. Whenever you're saying something really sincere, you say it really sarcastically. Yeah, no, that's, um, that's a defense mechanism. I do it uh, in school too. Uh, people in my theory classes called it my theory voice. And it's me, it's when I feel like I'm going to be a, a douchebag, it's like puncturing that bubble before it happens. Which I think is actually a really important way to like manage like uh, status and class and um, yeah. cultural. You're capital. saying I'm aware I sound like a dick. Yes, and yeah. I I don't want to make other people feel small or bad by being a dick. So, for instance, when I'm talking about like really intense sociological theory, like <laughs> Weberian theories of bureaucracy or Foucauldian theories of governmentality, it's like I act. Like a douchebag. Like, I say it because I'm like, I know this is stupid. <laughs> this is, like, a thing that's, like, so, like, intensely out of reach for so many people because it's such dense, ridiculous, jargony language. So I try to, like, diffuse the status that the specialized knowledge can give you by, by showing how stupid it is, is my sort of, like, Also, strategy. you sound like a lot of different wizards. Foucault and Hibbert. Short form game. Um, so you feel like you've unlocked a lot of short form? I do, yeah. I feel like I know, even though I can't always put it into practice, I know what I should be doing, I think, in most short-form games, which has been very illuminating <laughs> for me personally. Yeah, and I mean, we don't even rehearse it as much as we used to, but it's like, it always comes down to, like, what's fun about this? In mm -hmm. certain short-form games, like, following the form to a T is really fun. In mm -hmm. others, it's breaking it or messing with it in some way. And I think knowing, just having now done a bunch of short form games for really enthusiastic audiences, like our shitty scene audience, knowing that, yeah, if we're trying really hard, even if we screw up, it's fun. Like the audience is right there with us and they are enjoying the struggle. <laughs> I think that was also a really important thing to learn is that it's about the energy and the commitment and the enjoyment of the performers. I think that was really, really affirming for me to learn, to, to have practiced enough that it really feels true, I think is very important. That's awesome. That makes me feel good. Um, so you said Line Change was your favorite game. What's your second favorite game? Second favorite game? I actually really love guessing games mm -hmm. um, because the game is so easy because just guess badly. Like, say the first ridiculous thing that comes in your head. Say a thing that you can kind of see how you got it, but it couldn't possibly be that. And, like, that's so funny, like, to make unexpected connections. Um, uh, so I actually really, really enjoy guessing games. Yeah, I love that, too. And I feel like guessing games should not be done by groups that go for, like, dumb or easy laughs. Mm -hmm. But, like, the combination of top of intelligence guessing games and... Or the top of intelligence aspect of the people who are, like, given these amazing clues with the bad guessing is... Not bad guessing, like, the just the Hail Mary attempts is just so satisfying. Mm -hmm. I totally agree. Yeah, I think there's a really funny... 
I'm trying um, to think of an example, too. Well, just recently, QVC, uh, we played, I think, at the last of the Mother's Day uh, City Steam show, and Laura was guessing for me, and um, Stephanie was by herself. Uh, what's the other one? Summer? I don't remember. But, <laughs> and it, the, the person was Lady Gaga, and we acted like monsters and then pointed at our boobs, and she was like, monster boobs, Lady Gaga! audience, <laughs> like, lost their shit, because it's, like, that sequence of, like, realizations to get to a person is, like, so funny. Yeah, that is so awesome. Like, seeing someone connect the dots like that is, like, very delightful. Oh, that's, that's so great. That's so great. I, there's so many good examples. I can't think of a single one right now. Anyway. Um, so tell us a little bit about Shed, because you're our first podcast after Shed's existence. So tell us about... So Shed, I'll just explain. Shed is a, um, it's basically a sub-team in CT, although we don't use that word, except I just did. It's a, <laughs> it's a team made of some members of CT specifically for Cage Match, because we had so many people <laughs> that we divided into a couple groups. Um, so how has Shed been for you? Shed has been fantastic. Yeah. I think because a bunch of us were... Um, a little bit fatigued with the cage match, I think, because um, going into it and wanting to do the best job that we can, but knowing it's always about audience votes, so it's really about the people you bring, can be very exhausting of just, like, trying really hard and, like, still not winning. It's like, meh, and trying not to take it too seriously, but you can't help but not take it seriously. So starting this team where we do just montages off of living room openers, so we all just tell personal stories. That's basically the form that we've now sort of cemented as ours. And our whole philosophy, like our whole everything that we care about and that we're committed to is to just have fun. Mm -hmm. Like to just do silly, like wacky initiations and to be really energetic, to have a lot of motion and movement. Um, And it's been fantastic. (laughs) It's been so freeing of like to, to just as a group really commit to having fun. I think that that has been really wonderful. And then the fact that then we won the cage match is like, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, Helena and I were talking about, and I don't want, okay, I think you're going to understand what I'm saying. Mm-hmm. Helena dropped me off here, and she, we were talking about how amazing it was because, like, Shed's whole thing, I'm so into you guys, I'm so proud of you guys, it's awesome. But it's so funny to me because Shed is having this same experience to me that, like, probably every team that goes on a long cage match run goes through. And it's like that refreshing feeling of like, oh my God, we're gelling as a team and we're having so much fun. And like the fun is how you win it. You know what I mean? Yeah. But, um, as any long time, you know, fans of CT will know, like CT had that experience. And then we had a couple of years where it was just like too competitive and like too downtrodden. And we like tried to, we, we tried to make it better and we couldn't. Mm-hmm. And it was by throwing out basically the whole existing team and saying like, anyone who wants to just have fun, do it, <laughs> that we actually got the experience that mm-hmm. we were trying to force you guys to have, which mm-hmm. is so amazing you know so it's been like really really nice to see like i feel almost like oh my god now we all know you know like what it's like to go through that like bonding experience because it's just like it's been great to watch you guys have so much fun with it does that make sense no that makes total sense when you go into an improv show along let's say long form we already talked about show form what are the things that you're keeping like top of mind for for a good show what's a good show for you so what what makes me feel like I've done a good show, or what do I try? No, how do you like mentally in? prepare going to a show? Oh, I te- uh, I have to constantly tell myself to not plan. 
I have to do this very kind of like mind emptying, like, cause I think it's inevitable that it's like, for instance, with shed, when we know we're going to have to be telling stories for a living room opener, I'll start to do this. Like, what are my funny stories? Oh boy. Um, yeah. and you can't, you cannot do that. Cause if you go in with a canned anecdote, it's, so this is, when you tell a story that's already a funny story for improv, I think that that's always poison. Yeah. Um, I think you have to just tell something that's very honest and isn't a story. Like, I think anything with, like, an arc that makes sense and has some sort of conclusion will always be bad, because it's, it's, it's closed already. It's like a closed loop. Like, there's nothing, there's no way into it. You can't access it. So yeah. I think sometimes you can get funny, weird details that can still be useful. But, but the so. audience is so distracted by the original satisfying ending. That's what my experience. Yeah. That there's rarely something you can do better than a great story that's already been told. Yes. I think that's yeah. very true. I think you just have to be like, let me tell you about my coworker, Bill. Oh, man. <laughs> Bill. And then you just have to lift, rattle off, like, weird things about him. Um but so I have to constantly remind myself of that because I get really nervous about storytelling, about monologues in particular. Um, so I have to always remind myself, just don't, just like react, just think of something and then go. And your spluttering <laughs> and like desperation to remember something interesting will generate something very more human mm-hmm. and real and weird than if you have something planned. So, um... Emptying my mind is something that I tell myself very consistently. Like, don't think, don't plan, don't come up with premises, don't come up with opening lines. Like, don't. It'll be bad. Because <laughs> you'll get married to it, and you'll already have a vision for how it should go. Yeah. And then when a scene partner reacts their own way, it'll, like, derail it, and you won't know what to do. So Yeah, and you're then you're either not listening or you're mad at your scene partner, which I think is the lowest. Yeah. <laughs> oh, it's like, oh. Or you'll just be disappointed already because you're like, but I saw how good it could have been and it's already not there. And then you're already like, yeah, disappointed in yourself, disappointed in your team. And it's like, that's terrible. Don't do that. (laughs) Um, So, and now to answer your other thing that you thought you were answering is what, when you walk away from a show, when, how do you feel like, what's a good show when you walk away? (laughs) And when people laugh. (laughs) (laughs) I, I mean, that's an answer. Yeah, I mean, I think when I feel like I've gotten a bunch of good laughs, when I feel like I, um, when I feel like I did smart moves, mm-hmm. I think, like I feel like when I played a game uh, in an innovative way, like this is always something I get um, really jealous of Drew that he does, where it's like, okay, the game will be really clear, but then the move that he makes will be like really smart or really interesting. Like I think there was a he was in the mix group for the long-form showcase recently, and the game was a uh, sexy courtroom. Mm-hmm. And it was really fantastic. Like, a bunch, like, Brian Hines immediately came out and started being, like, a sexy stenographer. And I think Drew was the, um, not the judge. Who's the, like, warden, the, like, officer? The bailiff? The bailiff, yeah. And so, like, Brian Hines immediately came out and, like, blew a kiss. <laughs> like, it was, like, really <laughs> great. And then, um, then, so it's like, okay, so sexy courtroom. So, like, game is clear, and then I think the move that he did was he made the plaintiff swear themselves in on the stand on a copy of, like, Us Magazine. <laughs> and just, like, stuff like that it was, like, really interesting. Like, so on game, but, like, you wouldn't immediately think of it. Yeah, um, like, not like, I have boobs. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Not like, I'm really hot. A judge is not wearing a robe, they're wearing a thong. Like, not, like, mm-hmm. something something that's on game but unexpected mm-hmm. is so satisfying to me. So I think when I can do that... 
Um, but it still feels like it's gelling with what everyone else is doing. Then I feel like really satisfied. Awesome. Do you feel that, like, are you one of those improvisers who like hates yourself after a lot of shows or like you saying this is making me think of like, (laughs) this is now I'm thinking about myself, but, uh, you know, lately in the last like year or so, and I don't know if this is good or bad, but I think it's good. I have been way more open about being like, I really like that thing that I did. And I'll like <laughs> tell people and be like, I'm really proud of that. Or seek validation from others. Um, and I don't know. Are you like that? Or how, where do you put yourself on the humility scale? Um, I mean, I always like, I, God, I hate myself so profoundly that I like never like, I'm not, because <laughs> it's like, as soon as I'm ever satisfied with anything that I do, or as soon as I think I'm good, then I'm going to turn into a douchebag. So I have like constant vigilance through self-loathing, um, is my modus operandi. <laughs> but, uh, I mean, definitely like if I think I've done something well, like I'll carry it with me, like I'll mm-hmm. be proud of it inside. Um, but I always try to, uh, value and validate like what other people have done. Yeah. I think that's a good way to approach like team teamwork on an improv team to be like that movie did was so good and to not be because I think it's easy to be jealous of like oh that was such a good movie I suck they're great <laughs> but I think actually being like wow that was great like I can learn from that and I I had fun and I laughed in the scene or on the back line because you did that I think that's a really great way to approach things for me because it allows me to be really present and to just enjoy like how funny <laughs> all my friends are I know I know I. I couldn't agree more, and that's really been CT's, like, critical philosophy. I mean, what I'm saying is, you know, we don't give each other negative notes, but, like, please give as many positive Mm -hmm. notes as you can possibly, like, come up with, because, you know, it's so good for the team, it's so good for you, for your own humility, and obviously, of course, like, it's great to hear that, you know? And when In a sea of, like, I made a hundred moves this week when we do so many shows, Mm -hmm. you know, when certain ones stand out, it's just... You know, like, it's great to hear from your teammates that they were, like, hearing you and enjoying you. Mm-hmm. Um, so, what are you working on right now in your improv? What are you trying to get better at? I'm trying to get better at committing. I'm trying to get better at not breaking in scenes, especially because I smile a lot scenes. This is, like, <laughs> I a main note I've gotten <laughs> while I've been in CT. Um... And so, I mean, I think the two-prop class was actually really good. I took, Julia taught a specialty two-prop class recently that was really fantastic. Um, And I think that that class was so much about being truly present and truly human and real um, that I think that sort of helped with my commitment and just helped affirm that just people being people and revealing details about themselves and their lives and their relationships is really interesting. Even yeah. it's so endlessly fascinating to watch if everybody involved is truly present and committed, even if it's not getting immediate laughs. But I think that has been really good. Um, cause I think sometimes like smiling and breaking is, it's a nervous energy. And I think it's a, a defense mechanism of like, I'm having fun. No one can get mad at me in the scene, even if they're not laughing. Cause I think it's really fun and funny. <laughs> so, so that's something that I'm trying to get, to, um, get better at is like really committing and not just like grinning like <laughs> because I'm nervous. Well, I mean like I'm the worst person to have this conversation with you because like you're the smiler and I'm the laugher. I just think everyone's so funny. I really do. And I, uh, my problem is that I don't feel that bad about it. I'm like, Patrick is fucking funny. I'm going to laugh. Um, but no, it's, it's really hard. It's such a hard, you know, thing to change, but yeah, 
I mean, the two prop thing, like, I feel like the big secret is that if you're already pretty skilled at improv, like, two prop is actually easier than any other, because you just have to trust that it's going to be okay. Like, it was what are you going to so do, great. run away? Yeah, it was, just, it was like one of the most freeing experiences <laughs> taking that class. It was so great. Good. Yeah, we should do it again, or we should do it in different combos or something like, we should. We should have a two-prop show where we get randomly paired. I was just like, going to say think, that. Yeah, that would be oh so good. Oh my gosh, good. let's do it. At the top of the show, or you get maybe one rehearsal? Yeah, I feel like it would be good to be able to practice with someone or or do a bunch of practices in random two-prop configurations or something. But I mean, we've done a two-prop show, you know, but I think a random two-prop would be really fun. Yeah. Um, yeah, okay, we're doing it. We're I'm, doing it, Dan. Yeah, we're going to do it. Because I have thought, I've, like, looked at our sea of wonderful CT improvisers and been like, I would love to do two-prop with, like, each and every one know, of you. I know. <laughs> I've never done two props with Greg, my husband, and I'd like try to suggest, and he was like, I guess. (laughs) Oh, great. (laughs) Um, That's pretty funny. Um, Okay, so we're almost out of time. See how fast this went by? Yeah. And I didn't hurt you. You've been doing great. Julie has been grinding on my foot the entire time, so I can't run away. You've only done, I think, five wizard voices. (laughs) There's Um, still time. Yes. <laughs> so, uh, to end, we always end. I warned you. You're the only person who's been warned um, ever. Uh, five random things about you that we have not touched on at all, at all. in this podcast. Can you give me uh, you want a some theme? prompts? Yeah, prompts would be good. <laughs> okay, how about um, something when you were a teenager? Like what you were like or what you did? What I was like as a teenager. Um, I was a really strict vegetarian all through my teens. Um, I think from the time I was 11 till about the time I was like 21, I was a very, very strict vegetarian. How did very, you break it? Because uh, I had a, a boyfriend who, he became a vegetarian for a year or two to try it out and be like, yeah, no, I'm with you. Like, this is, we're very principled people. And then he was like, but, but you need to see the other side. <laughs> Oh, man. <laughs> um, so I think we had, like, a meat week was what we called it, uh, of, like, me, like, sampling and trying all this meat I hadn't eaten in, like, a decade. And I think that was just, like, the floodgates were open. <laughs> yeah. It was actually terrible the first couple. Like, I tried a hamburger, and I was like, this tastes like char. Like, I yeah. don't understand what's so appealing. But then I had, a like, some sort of chicken finger wrap. I was like, I haven't been this full. I have not been so full in literally years. Like, there's just, like, this wonderful, like, brick wall in my stomach. And that was a positive for you? Yeah. Because it's like, when you don't eat, oh, because I didn't, I wasn't great at, like, finding alternative protein sources. Like, you're always hungry. Yeah. You're so hungry if you don't eat enough protein. So I think that was what did it for me. Because now if I go back to being a vegetarian for a week or whatever, I'm just like, I'm so hungry. <laughs> wow. Well, uh, chicken finger is the official food of CT Improv. Yeah, it was so... a tendy sandwich. It was oh a chicken gosh. tendy sandwich that did me in. <laughs> All right. So that's one. Uh, number two, what's something or someone you think is so funny? Someone I think is so funny. In any realm of... In anything. Uh... Oh, God. I don't know. I'm thinking... <laughs> Like, no again. I mean, I hate all media. This is <laughs> <laughs> uh, we had that of like the five movies Brenna likes conversation because I hate. All right, so what are what's a movie you like then? A movie that I like, I love Heather's. I was thinking about this today because you were talking about nineties. I also love Heather's. I love Heather's. Um, 
All right, that's good. These yeah, are fun facts. Yeah. They don't have to have a story. Yeah. Brenna loves Heathers. I do. And has no nothing she thinks is funny. Uh, <laughs> all right, number three, anything. Like a hope or a dream, uh, a hobby, perhaps? Uh, I'm a, I write fiction as mm-hmm. a hobby. It's a hobby that I have. Mm-hmm. Good. What are you working on? Um, a bunch of different things. I have a bunch of short stories that I'm working on and two novels. Um, they're very backward because <laughs> I'm an anxious, depressed procrastinator. So <laughs> that's perfect. Two novels. You can always go back and forth when yeah. you don't want to be writing another one. Yeah. Awesome. Um, what is something maybe like music or book that you love? These are really open-ended. I know. That's what's hard for me is that they're so open-ended that it's like, but there's so many. These are fun facts. <laughs> I don't have fun facts. <laughs> I'm not fun. Um, I love the novel Kindred by Octavia Butler. I've taught it in a bunch of my classes. Um, that's mm-hmm. one of my favorite books ever. Um, my favorite author ever is Terry Pratchett. He just died. Oh, and yeah. he had, he had, he became, cause he was diagnosed with early onset Alzheimer's and he became a big advocate for assisted suicide towards the end of his life. Mm-hmm. And he had an NPR uh, interview recently where, or probably like a year ago, where he had the song picked out that he was going to listen to while he died if he wow. chose assisted suicide. And the day, I think he just died peacefully in bed, but I just spent that whole day like listening to that song and crying in my office. What song was it? It was, uh, it was a Catholic, I think, um, not a hymnal, but it was like a religious, uh, song, which was really funny because he was a big atheist, but he heard his wife playing it on the radio in their kitchen once when he was out gardening and he said, I was never a religious man, but that song, when I heard it, it made me fall on my knees just because of how transcendent human effort can be like our striving to make beauty and meaning out of the world. And so that's what I wanted to listen to while I died. Wow. Okay. And definitely the most fun of the facts. I'm a fun person. I don't know if you knew this about me. Um, and then, uh, for the last one, what did you want to be when you grew up when you were a little kid? I wanted to be a writer. All right. Well, there you have it, everybody. Brenna Harvey. That's me. Excellent member of CT Improv. (laughs) Fearful of interviews. So fearful. (laughs) I do stupid voices because I hate talking about myself. (laughs) We talked for a whole hour. It was great. I had a great time, even if you didn't. And that's what matters. Yeah, that Julia. (laughs) (laughs) All right, everybody. Uh, We're going to be doing more of these soon. Um, So please stay tuned and aware for the rest of our Generation 4 podcast. See you guys later. There's a place you're always welcome That's as nice as it can be Everyone can get in Cause it's absolutely free That's death No need to take a breath Just lie around all day With not a single bill to pay that's death No more sicknesses or flu If you've lived beyond your means You can die beyond them too Boo-hoo Well, the greatest and the finest mm, Have already died Why not simply join them 
other side That's death Say farewell to all your bills Rip up all your wills And pop your final pills Amen, that's death It's a tater tate with pain If you're not feeling great